morning and good morning from Sleepless in Dubai. My name's Julie Mahalan and we're live from this fabulous hotel, which is 25 hours. And I honestly, truly recommend it, that aside. Um, so my background is very much evidence and research based. And I am the mother of three incredible daughters. And with that, I'm now going to hand you over to my co-host, Laura. Hello, yes, my name is Laura Buckwell. I am an event MC. I'm a broadcast journalist and former news anchor, and most importantly, a mother of two. And we are delighted to welcome on the podcast today, Shiog Moore, who is the owner and manager of Little Land Nursery at Montessori Center, which by the way, has been voted number one in the whole of the UAE, which is incredible. Yeah. Thank Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Julie. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit more about yourself and your personal sort of journey within this field. And why do you think you've been voted number one then in the whole of the UAE? Right. Well, personal journey started Little Land Open 29 years ago uh, when I had just two children, aged three and one and a half, I think, at the time. And I couldn't really find a place that had the quality engagement that I felt I needed for my children. Um then I had I, I had a partner, she was a teacher, I was a nurse. We felt we had something very solid together with our values. So we wanted fully qualified teachers. We wanted full-time assistants. We had very specific values like no screens, no school trips, everything we would do. We would ask the question first, how does this impact the child? So any teacher we employed, any policy we brought up it was how does this impact the child so when people came in with trendy things for us to use that looked really good we'd say okay that looks really good how does it impact the child um so if it was a nap or something we'd say well actually we prefer to spend the money on the teachers or the books or the resources that we use for the children the best way to go really and how interesting you had that, that that sort of nursing background which I'm sure sort of helped in the whole development of everything as well, right? Yes, I think it gave people a lot of confidence because we were new. She was a teacher for 10 years. I'd been a nurse and a neonatal nurse for uh, about five years. And I think it gave people confidence that their children were safe, that we knew what to do in the event of something negative happening. So thankfully, nothing too seriously touch wood negative has happened over the years, but we know what to do. And over those years that you've had the nursery, I think that value system that you started out with is as strong today in terms of, because that's what I really saw when I came to your nursery before, you know, I had ever met you, but I came to the nursery very, very objectively and walking around the nursery and looking at the engagement of the children, it is about what is going to serve the children best. And, and I've seen that over the years and it is that philosophy and that integrity that when we are when we are working with these little people, it cannot waver. I, I think that's fundamentally what the your nursery gives to the children and the parents. Yes, and I think it it's quite easy to stay strong in it when we keep asking the question, how does this impact the child? What is the message that the child receives? Yeah, um, and I, I again, you know, quite often the children actually gets lost. And that's where... We're not able to continue delivering because fundamentally our goal set initially, we, it gets lost in everything else, such as, you know, just the whole running of a business, but you've managed to maintain that. So if we're looking at Montessori and the philosophy of Montessori, how 
do you see that bringing value within to the experience of the nursery? For the children or the teachers? For both. Right. Um, so I've done all my appraisals for my staff recently and we're doing a lot of training and we're introducing a new integrated Montessori programme and the feedback I got from the team was, you know, thank you for trusting us. Thank you for trusting us. Thank you for allowing us to teach with our personalities. So we have our basic foundation that we teach from and that we work from, but each teacher has their own values. So when I set up teams, if I have two people who are singers or two people who are really good artists, I'll mix them. I'll have the singer and the artist. Um, whatever their talent is, if I have somebody who's really, really quiet and I have somebody who has a very effervescent personality, I'll put those together rather than two big personalities together. Um, and that's a Montessori. That's looking at what you have and allowing the independence. For children, it's just amazing. It's You give children, we set up our classes in a Montessori way, which means that everything is at child level. So children have a freedom of choice, whatever they want to do in whatever area. So it could be language, it could be mathematics, it could be messy play, it could be creative, it could be a reading corner. Whatever they want to do, they can choose to go to that area for the first two hours of the morning or up to three hours in term three. And they learn that they are choosers. They learn that they can make decisions for themselves. And nobody's going to say to them that's wrong. There are so many right ways to do things, but I don't think Einstein ever created anything from something that was actually working well. Yeah. It, it was from things that didn't work well. And children do exactly the same thing. It's yeah. extraordinary. That in itself about giving your staff the freedom to make those choices, that provides that really safe environment for the children. And there's a child psychologist, Janet Lansbury, who we both know very well. And the fundamentals of her practice is all about trust, building that trust. And it's, it's trust overall. So trusting the children and you trusting the staff so you have a, a really positive workplace. But then there is something else which you just touched upon where we talk about um, strength-based learning. And again, just in the last three to five years, there's been a whole gamut of research looking at the benefits of strength-based learning, be it with our children or the impact, impact, a really positive impact it has on parents, the parent-child relationship. So maybe you might want to expand on that a little bit. So when children go through their sensitive period of learning, because they can choose to go to any area of the classroom, you can see what they're interested in. And then you can promote it and scaffold it. Yeah. So this child is really interested in numbers. This child is really interested in things that go round and round and circles. This child is really interested in sorting. This child is interested in puzzles. So you can make all these things more challenging for them and just give them a more difficult puzzle or more number work to do or maybe addition, maybe subtraction. A lot of parents are worried that when their child goes to nursery, they don't learn anything. They actually learn so much because they're hands-on. It's all experiential and it, it's a desire by the child. They're innately motivated. It's incredible. Once they learn that they're choosers, they are so motivated to try anything. Yeah. And so that will be the strength based for the children. Yeah. For the teachers, we go through something in their appraisals that I just talked about uh, called their values in action. And we take their top six values, they do a little survey and they get 26, their values ordered one to 26. And we th take their top six and we say, how are you working to your values? How are we serving you? How does the nursery serve you to work to your best? And what would you like to serve you even better? 
So it's that personal growth, both for the child and the teacher too. Yeah. And when both of those, when you have that synchronicity, that is really important as well. Um, so, so just in terms of with your own children, so you have four children and, um, did you have any challenges with their sleep along the way? I mean, I know they're adult children now, but do you have any sleep challenges along the way? Of course I did. And one of them would still describe himself as an insomniac at 30. Yeah. So um, he, he struggles. And I think it's useful to actually share the mistakes I made because I was too proud or I felt I knew more as a nurse that I knew what my baby wanted. My, you know, and it was OK for me to keep my baby up late if I let him sleep late in the morning. It was OK if I went to work and his dad brought him to nursery later. Actually not having the routine for him and for all of my children at any point was not good for them. Yeah. And I see that as a huge difference now for parents. Yeah. And I share it a lot yeah. because routine gives children comfort. It gives them safety yeah. in Montessori. We talk about freedom within a boundary, within a structured environment. And I think that gets lost sometimes, you know, the importance of those structures and boundaries within that safe environment. Because, as you said, that's exactly what the routine does. It enables them to feel safe and secure. And children love to know what comes next. Yeah. You know, they often, we forget how little control they have over their lives. And even like you might pick them up from nursery and think you've got this wonderful play date organised for them when actually they just want to go home and play. But, you know, we've got this organised and that. So if we can include them. But yeah, so routine is really important. I'm so conscious of that after school. And you see all these mums, you're doing all these amazing activities. And you think, oh, God, you know, I'm being terrible by just letting them come home and play and just sort of decompress after school. Because, you know, they've got to ingest what they've learned during the day and things as well, of course. But yeah, I find that sort of quite difficult. But also, how can you continue something that's structured all the time? I mean, you can't. There can't always be, you know, every and not nothing in life can be structured the whole time. So how can kids sort of navigate, you know, we're going to go on holiday and see a new place and there's not going to be routine whatsoever. I mean, is that a good or a bad thing? I mean, like within your nursery, for example, there is lots of practices, lots of experience. As you said, everything is about experiential learning. And lots of experience for the children, you know, there, there's different people coming into the nursery, different children in terms of, you know, Monday, Tuesday. And that in itself is showing that life isn't that straight line. Mm -hmm. So already they have got that experience, which is why the nursery setting is so important for our children. But it's all about bringing in those variables and preparing your children for what's coming next. You know, if the holiday season, you know, the holiday is coming up, you know, if you're partner came home and said to you we're flying off tomorrow for two weeks let's go you your brain would go into free fall your cortisol will flood your brain and so you would like that and yet we do that to our children all the time whereas we don't need to if we can just get them again that whole Benja uh, Benjamin Franklin quote you know tell me and I forget teach me and I remember involve me and I learn and involve me let them know about what is we're going on holiday and isn't that incredible. But equally tell them the bad bits too. On that plane, yeah, it's really exciting, but it's also really boring. So tell them. And I, you know, yeah, like you said. At, absolutely. And in nursery, I mean, I say to parents, please, when your child is starting nursery, don't tell them, 
it's so exciting. You're going to have so much fun. You're going to meet all your friends. They don't know these people. They're going to leave mommy. It's scary. Yeah. So, yes, we're going to go to nursery and we're going to meet your teacher and mommy's going to leave for 20 minutes and I will come back and collect you after I've had my coffee. Give them a visual. Yeah. We have visual timetables in the nursery. Remember these little ones can't read? Yeah. 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 So we have visual timetables. So they come in, they can see a photograph of the shelves where they can choose to play. They can see children playing at that photograph. Then they'll see a photograph of a circle time. They'll see a photograph of a snack time. They'll see a photograph of garden play. They'll see a photograph of music and dancing and they can see the musical instruments. They then know what's happening. And through the term, after a few weeks, they start to point out, I want, you know, I want to go outside or I want to, even if they can't speak and they're only two years old, they will say that they want to have their snack time or they want to have their drink because we have it all in picture form. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So, so what exactly is the sleep scenario within your nursery? Because I know you have very sort of young children, don't you? So paint that sort of picture for us. So for sleep, we have children who come in at 15 months. Most children are giving up their morning sleep at around 15 months. Um, so they only need a sleep after nursery. Some of the children, as they start, they'll still be in that morning sleep. So I ask parents to push out that sleep. If they sleep, say, at 11.30 every day, for a few weeks before nursery, I ask them to push it out to 11.45, maybe to collect their child then at 11.15 so that they're not upset and they get home and they can have their sleep at home. And so they have shorter days. By the time they're 16 months, they all tend to be out of it. So the children come to nursery from 8 to 12.30, gradually in the first month, and then they go home, they have their lunch, and they sleep for two hours. So the parents pick them up out of bed at half past three, four o'clock. They have a snack and they have an activity and they come home, they have their supper, their bath, their story. Um, and that gradual transition really is important. And when we're talking about transitioning from two to one nap, that's important. We don't say dropping nap, it is transitioning. And like you were saying about extending the nap or extending their awake time by 15 minutes to 30 minutes, the 15 minutes is important because we know that the brain can cope with a 15 minute increment without before it triggers the release of cortisol, which of course is what makes our children overtired. So, you know, like you were saying, extending by 15 minutes to 15 to 30 minutes is is really safe within our children. And, you know, that's what we are wanting. And it's transition transition all the time but because it's on the cusp have you had some nightmare situations where they just you know they're overtired because they're about to reach they're, they're, they're sort of transitioning that sort of now I think because we know to expect it we say it to the parents beforehand and we're planned so not really nightmare situations <laughs> we could imagine a nightmare if the parents said well actually I can't come and I won't be there for an hour and a half And but we always have staff and we always have somebody who can look after a child and at Mirabelle, passion fuels global connections. For more than 30 years, our international team has launched campaigns across continents through targeted marketing strategies, captivating promotions, and innovative media solutions tailored to brands ranging from fashion to travel and tourism to health and well-being, and so much more. Let our cross-cultural experience engage your audiences. Discover the Mirabelle difference at mirabelle.co.uk. And again, you know, I hear this so often about the fear of a child being overtired. And I think it's because it was drummed into everyone from when our children were babies. But that's because, you know, in that first month, you know, from birth, we know that 
From birth, approximately, the brain weighs about 400 grams. And by the age of one, the brain weighs about one kilo. That in that first year, there are so many cognitive leaps, so many growth spurts within the brain. A child can, they're much more likely to get overtired because of all these incredible uh, growth spurts. But really from the age of one, the growth spurts begin to get bigger in terms of time in between. So being overtired isn't as big an impact, but we've got to be very aware from the age of one onwards, um, meeting their needs of their autonomy, giving them some kind of control, that's far more important than the worry or fear of being overtired. That's really what we're looking at there. So, um, so how many days do you think we should give children to transition? How many days of those 15 minutes is it like, should we do it for three days? Should we do it for a full week? So it's very interesting. When we're transitioning a child from two to one nap, it generally can take anywhere between two weeks to one month. Okay. But it very much depends on the child. And also, the children who three to seven days, on that fourth to fifth day, you can see that the child is playing really well, they're engaging in play, and they're not ready. So you'll take the opportunity and think, okay, I'm going to extend this by another 15 minutes. And before you know it, you're at that ideal initially of 12.30 till 2.30. And then like within your nursery setting, it will be ideally one till three. And being mindful of that two hours of sleep, because some children, it's completely fine that they have the two hours, but not all children. I had a scenario um, last year where I had a little one of 17 months old. His sleep had been really, really tough. We had his sleep sorted. And then what we noticed was there were some days he was waking at quarter past five in the morning and then other days quarter to seven. This was driving me demented because the poor parents and the child and it was, I couldn't, I felt I couldn't solve it, which I don't like. So we came back, we had a sleep log and what we discovered when this little boy of 17 months, if he slept for one hour 50, he woke up at quarter past five. If he slept for one hour 40, quarter to seven consistently. Extraordinary. 10 minutes, 10 minutes. So that's what I'm saying with the sleep work. It's all about looking at your, it's looking at your child. And it's all trial and error, which is amazing because the nursery that we went to, I put both my kids in, I found it absolutely fascinating because my kids weren't necessarily great sleepers. But every time they went to nursery and it all was the time sleep out like that, literally they, they obey whatever rule was in the nursery. And they had like a whole room of kids all in the same room with whatever sort of yeah. music on. And they're all there sleeping peacefully. And like, how are they not waking each other up? How come they're so obedient in nursery? And they're so little, you know. But you say that they're not great sleepers. We forget the power of language. Language is so powerful. And, you know, we wouldn't say oh, our child isn't a great footballer or our child isn't great this, but we are very happy to say they're a shocking sleeper. And it's not. They just haven't learned. That, that's, that's it. They just haven't learned. Now, of course, you know, we know throughout adulthood, you know, we have people like my husband who can stand up falling asleep, literally standing up. Um, and my eldest daughter's quite like that too. Um, you know, my second daughter, for example, on the plane and train she finds it really difficult. So yes, we have our idiosyncrasies when it comes to sleeping, but generally we all have the capacity to learn and get our seven to nine hours. Are you a good sleeper, Shiog? Am I a good sleeper? People usually answer a question with a question when they're not comfortable with their own answer. 
Maybe why are you not so good sleeping in? <laughs> okay. So I don't tend to sleep enough, but I don't have a problem sleeping. I put my head on the pillow and I'm gone within five minutes. I'd love to read a book or something. I don't even get through a page. Um, I put on Andrew Huberman podcasts and I'm asleep within five minutes and five hours later I waken up. But when I waken up, I, yeah, I tend to get five to six hours sleep a night, which wouldn't be enough, probably. It, is that because of work commitments or is it because you just automatically wake up early? I think it's a bad habit. I think I go to bed too late because I don't, I, as a mother of four children with who had five years between the youngest and oldest, I think I valued my nights so much because that was my free adult time. I just got into this habit and I feel like I'm missing out on something. So I do think it's a personal goal that I need to address. So Me. many, so many people have the same though, the FOMO of, you know, miss oh. the, yeah, it's always FOMO, isn't it? Yeah. Always yeah. fear of missing out. Yeah. And then Netflix series and TV and just enjoy your own company where you can sort of relax a bit, right? Yeah. But there is that, we all have it. And I think modern day living, that fear of missing out. But I do also believe that the more science that we know now about the value of sleep, we are starting, and I say starting, we are starting to, you know, stop talking about it and try and implement some of these changes and into our sleep routine. So what do you suggest? So the first thing is not to fall asleep in front of the screen. That absolutely, absolutely is the biggest factor here. Because when you fall asleep in front of the screen, that is going to um, rob your body of the sleep pressure, the homeostatic pressure that it needs to fall asleep. So, for example, to last the night, so you do sleep longer than six, six hours, five to six hours. And you've got to think of sleep pressure as like an appetite. You know, the longer we go without food, the hungrier we become. The longer we go without sleep, the more tired we become. So if you have fallen asleep in front of the screen, and then when you wake up, your body, the balloon has popped. So once you have um, fallen asleep and then woken up, you now need another 11 to 12 hours for your sleep pressure or that balloon to fully inflate that you have sufficient sleep pressure to pull you through the entire night. And when we're looking at the entire night, it's about recognizing the value of sleep because sleep is not is not of the same value throughout the night. And that's why we say sleep is not a straight line. It's really dynamic and there are different values. So at the very beginning, it's like we had this wonderful plastic surgeon who talked about the human growth hormone. Now that human growth hormone we know, and now which is the wonder of science, it comes in somewhere between 11 to 12 o'clock for us as adults. That human growth hormone boosts the collagen which helps us stay looking younger. So there are different values throughout the night. If we're looking at our children, we're looking at all the neuroscience data, the golden hour for sleep for our children up until about 11 is seven o'clock. Now I know that is horribly early, but I actually think from a holistic perspective, 7.45. The reason why we say that seven o'clock, that's your, your theorists and your academics who are, who've discovered that that early part of the sleep is all about the benefit of verbal, verbal memory for our children. So it's recognizing the benefits throughout the night for our sleep. And then the latter half of the night, which if you're getting up at five or some parents at four, unfortunately, and not going back to sleep, that's your rapid eye movement. And that's that deep, deep sleep, which is so important for all of us. So it would be first thing, not in front of the screen. Mm -hmm. um, and even, you know, if you can go for a little walk, 
at you know nine o'clock, nine thirty, because that light is confirming with your brain it's nine thirty p.m., not nine thirty a.m. And of course, exercise that exercise you're bringing in both of those things. So that would be one of my tips for sleeping. So I think when I do sleep early and I do sleep well, if I sleep the seven eight hours, I waken up refreshed. I am kind of motivated to do the same thing the next night or the next night, and then it gets disturbed. So how long would it take me? or generally an adult, to develop a habit like that if I actually force myself to go to bed by 10.45? Okay, I love this question. So again, always looking with our children as well, um, it takes as we, it takes 10 to 14 days to change the behaviour of a child. And that's because, and it is about changing the behaviour, it's not the child, so it's building that habit. And that's because the, the brain is so underdeveloped as children, whereas with us as adults, it takes 21 to 28 days. There's quite a big variable there. So that, with our children 10 to 14 days, is accommodating different temperaments, how resistant we are to learning. And, you know, there's lots of research to say that boys actually have the bigger problem when it comes to sleep. And one of the main reasons for that is because, again, of the architecture of their brain, and from an evolutionary perspective, they have to be resistant to change to keep them safe when they're out, you know, hunter-gathering. Whereas the female back in the day would be managing all these children. So they had to be much more flexible because, you know, the daddy had gone and done the, was was away. So boys tend to be much more resistant to change. And again, it's something to do with how the grey and the white matter is constructed. Mm -hmm. So 10 to 14 days for children and 21 to 28 days for you. And that actually feels a really long time, doesn't it? You know, if we think about the 1st of January and we're there and we're all, you know, we're going to change this habit. 1st of January and by day five, it's like, oh, I can't do this. But I think we, it is important to do. I think it actually feels possible. Mm. I think 28 days is actually quite possible. Good. And, yes. and, but if when you say for children, that's amazing because I have parents coming into nursery and they say, oh, she didn't have a good sleep last night or he didn't have a good sleep last night. And they're the days that we see children just bursting into tears for no reason. Maybe biting another child frequently. If a child is biting and biting regularly, it will be on a day after they haven't had a good night's sleep. Yeah. I was going to ask if there are any sort of particular stories that you can remember about or any sort of case studies of, of any kids that have come in. But as he said, yeah, the biting. I remember, yeah, my, my son used to bite a little bit when he was a bit tired. So we had a, a little boy who started in April of this year and he was a little bit younger than the others. I was a bit nervous about him starting. Was he too young? And I don't, inf you know, we can look at children, get to know them. But he was there three days and once he'd settled and got to know us, he started to bite. And then we looked at the bite, the timing, we recorded and observed what was happening. Like, was there something? Was it snack time? Was it playtime? It was after playtime. And then it was actually after 11.30 every morning. So we got mum to come and pick him up at 11.10. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Wow. Honestly. And no more bites, like zero. Yeah. It was amazing. It was so I mean, useful. Do you give advice to your parents as well uh, when it comes to sort of, yeah. uh, sleep and the Montessori system and things like that? So we get to know the different families and the different cultures, the different experiences, and we have a change in routine when it's Eid, when it's Ramadan, when it's Diwali, when it's Christmas, when people are going on holidays, when daddy's travelling. Daddy yeah. travels a lot. And nowadays, there are a lot more mummies travelling. You know, our society has changed um, over these years. I just see different patterns. 
and we get to know what their needs are. So I will always prioritize family over everything. And once we get the family needs filled, then we work out how to find the child's routine within the needs so the child feels safe. So it's interesting you saying about you recognise the the pattern of behaviour, but it's the same in terms of the biting in 11.30, but it's the exact same as us as adults. You know, we are well rested. We can manage situations. So our stress levels, we can tolerate so much better. And it's the same with our children. If our children are sleep deprived, that impulse control, particularly from birth to three, we know that impulse control is is developing. And from birth to three, it's very, very limited. And that idea of biting, it, it's those things of frustration. You know, they haven't got the words, but of course, the sleep we know is really significant when it comes to developing their speech and language. It's that encoding when they are sleeping. So if they're not sleeping, the encoding isn't there. So we have the frustration, much more likely to bite. But also when they are tired, the impulse control is far worse. So again, much likely to bite. Yes, totally. And, and a little boy comes to mind. So he's been with us for the last two years. I went into nursery yesterday morning, particularly early because I knew his mom was coming in early just so I could say goodbye to her. And I said, hasn't he done well? So this little boy came. He was speech delayed and he had a couple of things that needed attention. He needed to have a tongue tie um, cut. He needed to have a lip tie cut. Um, and then she did everything, but he was still delayed and she went to see a speech language therapist. He got sick quite frequently. And in my talk to parents last summer, just before we finished, I talked to them and I said, listen, if your children are snoring, it's not normal. It's not okay. Don't accept it. If your child is walking around with an open mouth and they're not breathing through their nose, it's also not okay. Please go and see an ear, nose and throat specialist. I know very little about it, but I know that it impacts their sleep, their concentration and their their stress levels, their cortisol levels and their immunity. This woman came up to me after and said, really? She took him to the doctor. Five months ago, he had his adenoids removed. He stopped having speech therapy. He is totally engaged with his friends. He looks like a different boy. He stopped getting sick as often. I won't say he didn't get sick. Children get sick in nursery. But he didn't get sick as often or for as long. And just it, quite a simple diagnosis as well. Simple. Just on you know, one ailment and then you can you fix it and then yeah. things change, right? But it's, impa- it's the impact. I mean, we had a paediatrician, Dr. Medhat, and we were talking about sleep apnea within children and snoring. And like you say, it's absolutely not normal. But how it impacts our sleep is huge in terms of not getting sick. Um, he was getting sick a lot, you know, again, with the plastic surgeon that we had on. And he talked about this, the protein, the cytokines. When we are sleeping at night, these proteins are being built. These cytokines are being built that protect our, nerve, uh, our um, immune system. And if we're not sleeping that the quality of sleep, when this little boy was not sleeping, then all of those things were not being allowed to develop and protect him during the day. That's what sleep does. It, it's, it's our natural healer. I think it's Matthew Walker who said, it's free therapy, be it medical therapy or any kind of therapy. Mother Nature has provided that to us. So we need to take advantage of it. Completely. Um, you mentioned sort of the Eid holidays and religious occasions. And of course, Ramadan is quite a good example because obviously the time shifts, doesn't it? Mm. So uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about sort of what you see on your nursery. And Julie, you could 
sort of tell us as well how to, how to manage that. And is there is there a different sleep cycle that you sort of recommend for those families? So how do you see that within your nursery? Do you see that impacting the children? I do. And I see parents who choose to keep their child in their sleep routine. The children do fantastically. Parents who choose not to and, and who involve their child in the whole of Ramadan and being up late at night and being up with the family actually very often choose not to come to nursery. And, you know, I think it's really wise because that's what we're all about. What is the message the child is receiving about life and about them in life? Yeah. And and, and their family values. And family values. Yeah. It, it's bringing, and that's the whole point of these different celebrations that we are, whether it's, whether it's Christmas, whether it's Eid, like you say, whether it's Diwali, it's about the importance of family values. And again, you know, I do believe that as a community here in Dubai and just as we have a duty of care to support that. Yes. So that's what's really important there. But just in terms of um, sleep and certain holiday situations, what I find is when I give the parents permission, like, for example, I will say to them, do you really have to take your child? Do you have to all go or can you have your routine with your little one they go to sleep and then you follow it's almost like they needed that permission to be offered it and they really really take it and then everyone is happy because to have a sleep deprived child it's miserable absolutely miserable nobody enjoys any celebration when the child is unhappy you know you as a parent are as unhappy but also that huge pressure of oh my goodness they're going to think I'm a terrible parent they're also going to think my child is terrible and neither is true. Well, actually, nobody thinks you're a terrible parent. We as parents think that where we are our worst judges ourselves. Nobody thinks that. You know, it's like if you're in a mall and your child's having a meltdown, you must think, what is everybody thinking? Actually, most parents are thinking, gosh, that poor parent, that poor child. So it's just about getting rid of these beliefs that, you know, getting rid of that noise in our head. Mm-hmm. Final question, unless you have any more questions, of course, Judy. Um, just, so I suppose my last question is, when you have children that are coming into the nursery and who are very, very tired, do you have discussions about, do you have options? What would you like to do about your, if the parent is saying my children is, child is not sleeping? I do have discussions with them and sometimes they go really well. But sometimes I get a parent who says, well, my child's not tired. Um, I'm, I, you know, I practice attachment parenting. I, I go to sleep with my child. It takes us two hours. I do everything I can. I lie down with my child. I, it can take up to two hours for them to go to sleep. And they're really determined to be that most focused parent. And I find it very difficult, actually, to help them change their child's sleep pattern. And I was actually going to ask you, what do you, what do you think? What do, what do we say to parents who say, well, you know, I know when I'm tired, so surely my child will tell me when he's tired. Oh, um, you know, we are the parent. So our children, according to our children, they are the greatest leaders. No, <laughs> so we have to take charge, not control, but we do have to take charge. You know, I will remind my parents that our children don't have the wisdom. Every child will know what they want, but they don't know what they need. And that is ultimately the answer to your question. Our children don't know what they need and therefore we do have to be the parent. So Julie, I have a question for you. A lot of my parents come in and say, 
uh, well, does your sleep consultant, your preferred sleep consultant, Julie Mellon, do cry it out? And I, or, or does she do sleep training? And because I know my child is going to cry, and I don't want to do cry it out. It's it's cruel and it's it's wrong. And I say, no, Julie doesn't do cry it out. And they say, well, I heard she does, and I know you don't. Yeah. What's the difference between cry it out, sleep training, sleep coaching? And all these terms that people use. So it is really interesting. That question, as you are asking me, and if you were, you were saying, you know, a parent said, but I hear she's... I actually had a visceral experience of, I absolutely do not do cry it out. Because apart from a professional perspective and all the research that is available to us now um, from a personal perspective, I didn't do it with my own three daughters, so... Why would I expect anybody to do something I wasn't prepared to do myself? So that's the first thing. But secondly, there is some really, really interesting, um, very concrete uh, research that's come out of Australia where they followed children through for six years. And what they said is when you do sleep training, whether it's the gentle or the quiet out, um, no harm comes to your children. How can we use that as a barometer? If no harm comes to your children, that's okay. So that's the perspective that I'm also coming from. Now, when we're looking at the cry it out method or a much more gentle method, which is what I use, when we do sleep coaching and that, you know, sometimes I will say to my parents that I know it sounds pedantic, but I'm a sleep coach. I am not a sleep trainer because when we sleep train our children, our children don't have a voice. But when we sleep coach, We are their emotional coach. And that's what we as parents are really wanting to be the emotional coach for our children. So there is a huge difference. Now, I've devised what's called a soothing ladder. Now, that soothing ladder means that when we are doing the sleep work, the sleep learning, a parent never leaves the room of, never leaves the children's bedroom until the child is asleep. But gradually, once the child is beginning to know that they can do it, again, going back to that 10 to 14 days, we're gradually fading out all the levels of assistance that were there at the very beginning that our children perceived they needed to fall asleep. But of course, they didn't need that. And we know from the age of possibly as early as four months, but definitely uh, at six months old, that's where we can sleep coach our child because we also know that there's a the singular cortex of the brain is a mechanism which enables our children to be able to self-soothe. So as our children are developing this ability, you as a parent, going back to your scaffolding that you used earlier on, you are the scaffolding within that learning for your child. So we use that soothing ladder and then we gradually fade out the sleep work. Now, absolutely, there is going to be crying, but the child is not left alone at any point. You're not ignoring your child. You can talk to your child. You can, you know, hold your hands, hold your child's hand. You can give a hug to your child. You can take the child out of the cot as many times as you like. I would never, and I hope anyone, never tells a mother or father not to pick up their child. We have no right. Nobody has that. If a mother or father needs to hold their child, then that's what they do. So this is why um, cry, there is no cry it out within the philosophy of or practice of my work. The thought of cry it out is just horrendous to me as well. I, I never did any of that. But I probably didn't do the right sort of sleep coaching either. 
But I thought that that was, you know, quite extreme actually as well. Final question. Uh, tell us about what makes up the perfect night's sleep for you and is there a routine to get to that stage? So when I try to get into my routine and when it's working, it, the routine I think that suits me best is probably to have a walk at around between 9 and 10, to come home, cool down, have a shower, put on a podcast, put out the lights, put on a podcast, put it on time or maybe an audible put it on timer for 10 to 15 minutes, go to sleep, be in bed before 11, 15, I would really congratulate myself. And then to waken up naturally before the alarm at 6.30. That looks amazing. So a lion doesn't appeal to you, like a nice lion or, or anything like that? I get a headache if I oversleep. It's horrible. So that's Saturday morning sleep where I might. So I will often try and make an appointment for myself to be up early on a Saturday because if I know I can sleep, I, I get a headache when I stay in bed until half nine or ten. Interesting. Um, and just to, you know, add to that question, which you will be very happy to hear about the answer and absolutely evidence-based. So we talk about sleep needs, seven, nine hours as adults. Now, there is a lot of research that's coming through. You know, if we're talking about you, really dynamic entrepreneurs who can't sleep, they, they can't possibly get seven hours in or nine hours. Six and a half hours is because we're talking about quality of sleep here. And one of the rate determining factors about the quality of your sleep and it not having a detrimental effect on your health and mental well-being is your consistent wake up in the morning. Not particularly when you go to bed at night. It's that consistent wake up at 6.30 every morning. And there that has a really positive impact in the quality of your sleep. So uh, just a kind of little wiggle room there, if you like. So, okay, I we have absolutely loved this conversation. And I know that any of the parents listening will have learned so much from you. So thank you. Thank you so much for this morning. And all that is to say from us here at Sleepless in Dubai is reset, recharge. And with that, you will be able to conquer anything at all that you want to do.